Well, our senior pastor, Pastor Bailey, is uh, out traveling, actually was at the wedding of one of our members out in New Jersey this week. Um, So I have the privilege of preaching to you in his place. He and Heidi are gone, but their children are here. Thanks to Mary for coming and taking care of them. Um, So we're going to look at, we've been singing about um, in our service this morning, the love of God and and His loving kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And that's what our sermon is on as well this morning. Um, I hope and pray that your hearts may be strengthened this week as we take a glimpse at what God teaches us about love in His Word, specifically His love. So would you please open to Ephesians 3 with me if you have your Bible. This is one of those places in the New Testament and one of the Apostle Paul's letters. Sometimes the Apostle Paul is very systematic and ordered in what he writes. But sometimes he can't help himself and finds himself overflowing in praise to God, even in the middle of some logical train of thought. And this is one of those places where he cannot keep himself from praising God for something in particular. And this is what Ephesians 3, uh, verses 14 to 19 is what we'll be looking at. And then we'll be jumping around to a a few different places in Scripture. But this is what God's Word says. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So we're going to look in a number of different places in Scripture to see what God reveals to us about love, but I want this passage to be our root or our grounding, so to speak, as we look at God's love in Scripture. The magnificent, indescribable love of Christ is going to be the context in which we understand everything else we say about love. Christ's love for sinners is the greatest of all loves, and everything we say about love must be grounded in the comprehension of His magnificent love. Now first about this passage, I want to point out something very practical before we even dive into the theology, so to speak. I want you to notice two simple things about this passage. One is, and you might just miss this, Paul prays for the Ephesians. That's number one. And number two, he tells the Ephesians that he prays for them. That's a sweet thing to encourage one another in the body of Christ through prayer, and not just that, but through informing one another of our prayers. Have you ever noticed how Paul does this over and over again in his letters? He says he has not ceased to pray for the Colossians. To the Philippians, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Prayer, prayer, prayer. And to the Thessalonians, he writes, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. And this is a sweet example of Christian love that the Apostle Paul gives to us. Is that prayer is a real gift that we give to one another. So I have a question for you, practical question right off the start. Do you encourage your brothers and sisters by telling them that you pray for them? 
Now, of course, that question bears with it an assumption, doesn't it? When I ask you if you encourage your brothers and sisters by telling them that you pray for them, there's an assumed question. Do you pray for your brothers and sisters? More specifically, do you pray for your brothers and sisters when they don't know about it? In other words, not at small group, not at Bible study, not when you meet together, which are all good times to pray for one another. But do you pray for your brothers and sisters on your own time, like the Apostle Paul did? Or more importantly, like Jesus? Remember what Christ told Peter. I have some of these Scriptures, James. You'll have to help me out. There will be a lot of Scriptures I actually put up there. I don't remember if this is one of them, but... Uh, it might not be. So Peter, or Christ says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, this is at the end of his ministry, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Do you remember what Jesus says there? But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The sweet gift from Christ to his disciple Peter to tell him that he had prayed for him. Our prayers for each other mark us as Christians. But where do these private prayers for one another come from? Well, they come from love for one another. From deep affection for each other in Christ. And so if the answer to do you pray for your brothers and sisters is no, then the question must be asked, do you love your fellow Christians? What else could motivate you to lift up your brother or sister in prayer to God when no one else is watching? Only love, right? Now, a number of years ago, back at our church in Bloomington, we as a church pursued an intentional time of focusing on evangelism and outreach to those who did not know Christ. We committed ourselves to a few things, to regularly seeking out and taking opportunities to share the love of Christ with those who do not know Him. But as part of that endeavor, we committed ourselves to diligently praying for unbelievers as well. We committed to praying that God would change their hearts, to praying that God would bless them with His presence, to praying that God would give us opportunities to speak with friends, neighbors, classmates, and co-workers who didn't know Christ. We also committed ourselves to holding one another accountable in our small groups with our commitments to pray and share the gospel with others. Now going into that initiative, I remember thinking, well, obviously, everyone's going to be more faithful in the praying part of things, and it'll be harder for them to fulfill the like, you know, talking to people and having people into their home. But I was surprised that that didn't end up being the case. Many of us had more than a few weeks where we came to small group and we had spiritual conversations with people, or perhaps even had non-Christians into our homes, and yet we failed to pray. This was surprising to me because isn't praying supposed to be the easy part? I mean, isn't praying for people the low-pressure, low-hurdle aspect of evangelism? Just pray for specific people, that's it? But that's not how it works, I came to find out. Many of us had as much trouble faithfully praying for people as we had of keeping any of the other commitments. But why was that the case? Well, doesn't it seem much more glorious to come to small group and be able to say, well, I had five conversations. And we had 18 people into our home this week. Oh, you prayed. Well, you know, that's, that's pretty good, I guess. I guess it's a start, but maybe you'll graduate beyond that to doing, you know, real work at some point. There's something about the level of our commitment to private secret prayer 
which really diagnoses the condition of our hearts, even more than the level of our commitment to seemingly more difficult tasks. The question for us is, what are your commitments when no one is looking? What are your commitments when no one realizes that you are acting on your commitments? What is your commitment to love the lost when the work is purely in the heart and soul, in prayer, invisible to the eyes of man? Think about it. Is it possible to speak to someone about Jesus? And this can be to an unbeliever or a believer, right? Is it possible to speak to someone about Jesus without loving them? I think so. Is it possible to have someone into your home and share dinner with them without loving them? Proverbs teaches us it's very possible to have a table filled with strife, right? But is it possible to pray for someone, to lift them up into heaven and ask for God's blessing on them without loving them? I don't think so. Truly praying for someone requires that we do something that only God sees and that we don't get any worldly recognition for. And it requires faith, perhaps even more than other seemingly more daunting acts of faith. So I just want to exhort you that praying is not some sort of piddling level one of the Christian life, whether it's evangelism or encouraging one another. And then maybe you can hopefully graduate beyond to reach levels two and three of actually being effective in the kingdom of God. Prayer Calling on God for power is the foundation of the spread of the gospel. Because prayer, and here's what we're getting into, prayer roots and grounds us in love. And that's what Paul teaches us. Now I want to take the opportunity to open up just a few scriptural truths about love, which I hope will convict and strengthen us where we need it today. The first is very simple because it's very, very important for us here you and me, to understand because of our particular temptations, I think, and our traditions. And that's this. First truth about love. Knowledge does not equal love. Okay? You can imagine a big you know, do not equal sign. Knowledge does not equal love. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 13. This will be a familiar passage, I hope. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Thanks, James. Now, many of us are aware of the fact that the world and many who claim to be Christians have sucked truth out of love, right? Many have divorced love from true teaching and right doctrine and have said that love is just about how you feel. It has nothing to do with rigid standards of right and wrong, okay? This, this is familiar to us. This is how we've ended up with Christian pastors proclaiming that someone can be a Christian and yet still cling to a sexually perverse identity. It's wicked, and we're right to fight against this corruption of the truth and to recognize that it's not love when righteousness is removed from the equation. But there's a wrong way to react to this corruption of what true love is, which is very tempting for us, and it takes this form. Telling people the truth is loving them. Okay? But often when we say this, I think what we really mean is knowledge is love. Or maybe discernment is love. To love is to know the truth and to be able to discern error. 
But this is a cop-out, and it's actually not biblical. Knowledge isn't love any more than the wheels of your car are the car itself. Okay? Discernment is a great gift, and you might have it, and it's vital that we all grow in it. But if you're like me, you know that discernment is not sufficient when it comes to effectively loving people or talking to people about Jesus. Somehow being able to see and identify problems and sins and doctrinal error just isn't enough to propel me into actually caring for someone's soul. And here's why. This is also from 1 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul teaches much about love. This is from chapter 8. Jump to that one, James. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, He is not yet known as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now understand that Paul is not saying that knowledge isn't important. He's not saying that love is the only thing that matters. He's not setting up knowledge in opposition to love as if you have to choose between the two. No, both are necessary, but it's a matter of order and priority. The question to ask is, is your knowledge rooted and grounded in love? Or has the arrogance of your knowledge crowded out love? Has knowledge thrown love off of its throne? If so, then the Holy Spirit says your knowledge is of no value, and may it perish with you. Love must lead and direct the use of your knowledge. If it doesn't, just forget about your knowledge. Now, I want you to see what Paul does here. Look at what he says in verse 3 of what I just read from 1 Corinthians 8. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. You see, the question is, I think, that comes from this is where is your confidence? Where is your faith? Do you have confidence in your discernment, your own gifting, your own knowledge, and your ability to point out errors and sins in other people? Or is your confidence in being known by God. You see, you can be arrogant in your knowledge. There may even be arrogance in knowing a whole lot about God. But the Holy Spirit leaves no room for arrogance in our hearts when he tells us that the central reality of our lives as Christians is to be known by God. The Apostle Paul flips the whole thing on its head. Many of us earnestly seek after knowledge or we even feel guilty or pity ourselves for not knowing enough. But for how many of us is it our heart's deepest desire that we be known by God? Listen to this. Here's a few passages that teach us the truth of being known by God. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. The prophet Jeremiah says, But you know me, O Lord. You see me. And you examine my heart's attitude toward you. And Jeremiah, again, a few chapters later, this is God speaking, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And then listen to this from the New Testament, from John. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? 
Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. What tips Nathanael off to who Jesus really is is the fact that Jesus knows him. Or this from later in the Gospel of John. This is Jesus speaking, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. In Matthew, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many mighty miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. To be known by God is the highest aim of a believer in Jesus Christ. But to be known by God is to be humble before Him. It puts knowledge firmly in God's hand and removes any occasion of pride from us. To be known by God is actually a fearful thought. Think about how you spend your life. Many of us spend our energies trying to hide everything about who we really are from the people around us because of a fear of what they might think. We're gripped by fear and a desire to cover over our sins and our weakness with frivolous conversations and shallow relationships and entertainment. And then to imagine not just being known by and exposed to other sinful men and women who might disapprove of us, but being known by the holy God who searches hearts and minds with perfect spiritual vision in order to repay each person for their deeds. You can't be proud if your desire is to be known by God. Because to be known by God is to be humble before Him. Well, let me ask you this. Don't you want your name in God's book? Isn't that worth all the suffering you can imagine? To be remembered as one of His children and brought into heaven and granted everlasting joy in the presence of Christ our Savior. And to not have him say, I never knew you, but to come into the presence of Christ and have him say, I know you. In order to counteract the pride of knowledge, God exalts the quality of being known by him. Now this bears on sharing Christ and speaking to people about Christ because at the heart of being known is being vulnerable. I said being known by God is to be humble before Him, right? There's nothing we have to be proud of. And this is true as we deal with other people and love and are loved by other people as well. To be known is to be open and exposed. And I think we need to be willing to be known by other people if we're to make inroads into their hearts as we love others. You have to be willing to be known by someone in order to love them. To love God is to be known by Him, to say to Him, know my anxious thoughts. And I think to love others includes a willingness to be known by them. It means to open up your own life, your own sin, your own weakness. And if you do this with others, you will find that people will be vulnerable to you. I promise. Remember the woman at the well who was painfully known by Jesus. You have had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. What was her reaction to being known by Jesus? 
Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? She was not offended by Christ's knowing of her, but loved him for it. So remember, knowledge does not equal love. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So that's the priority in our mind, is being known by God. This is the main thing. And when love for God becomes the root and grounding for our knowledge, then we will begin to bear real fruit. So knowledge does not equal love. Now here's the second truth about love, and it's directly connected, but I want us to be grounded in this reality. Love means bearing with weakness. God has been opening up to me over the past few years, I'd say, my own hatred of weakness. Which is to say, my complete dearth of compassion. Which is to say, ungodliness in the extreme. Now why do I say ungodliness? But did you know that mercy and compassion are foundational to God's character? Now I say that and you're like, well, duh. But this is a truth that I easily forget. Of course, our stated theology that we say we believe is that God is merciful and loving and compassionate. But I think our heart theology, what we often end up acting on, is that God is by nature holy and righteous and that mercy and compassion are just these sort of secondary attributes that God added on and had to take on because of our sin. If we hadn't sinned, you know, God wouldn't have had to do that whole mercy thing. And the world would have been perfect because he wouldn't have ever had to forgive anybody. Ugh, forgiveness. Such an inconvenient necessity, right? I think sometimes that is how we approach the forgiving of others, right? But listen to this. This is how God describes himself to Moses the minister of God's thunderous, fearful law on Mount Sinai. This is from Exodus 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. God is compassion. He is grace. He is slow to anger. He abounds in loving kindness and in truth. Truth and compassion embrace each other in God. And he is never without both of those things. What else did Jesus show us and teach us when he came to live among us? That he is both righteousness, truth, and loving kindness. But I think we hate weakness. I think we are a people characterized by disdain for weakness, both in ourselves and in others. I won't spend much time talking about hating the weakness in ourselves, but suffice it to say that there's an ungodly sorrow over sin, which is rooted and grounded in pride and which causes us to be paralyzed in the work of God's kingdom. But remember, there is a godly sorrow over sin that leads to repentance without regret. We hate weakness in ourselves because it's hard to be proud when you're weak, but we also hate it in others. 
When we perceive weakness or sin or hardness of heart in someone else, our inclination is to immediately turn away. This is the case with our own children. Some of the most difficult work I've experienced in my brief years of being a parent is when you try to show affection to a child and the child stiffens up and turns away, right? And your sinful reaction, right, is to, well, fine. I didn't really want to give you a hug anyways, right? But isn't that perfect ungodliness? Listen to this from Romans 5. While we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then it goes on to say, while we were enemies, we were reconciled. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. God had compassion on you, those of you who are in Christ, while your heart was still as hard as stone. He didn't wait till you had become soft, till you had shown your great worth and lovability before He poured out His love on you. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because He first loved us. There was a time when each of us did not love God, when our heart was utterly and completely cold and opposed to Him, and He set His love on us while we were still in that state, and then drew our heart to Himself. Now perhaps it describes you now that you are still in that state of being cold and dead to God. And perhaps He is drawing you to Himself right now. Today is the day for repentance and faith. God's love is defined by bearing with weakness. He loved us while we were yet His enemies. So one application is, do you love God's enemies? Do you wish with all your heart that His enemies would turn from their sin and give Him praise? Or do you write off anyone you perceive to have a hard and hopeless heart? It's God's glory to convert hard and hopeless hearts. It's God's glory to bear with and overcome our weakness. Love means bearing with weakness. That's what His love meant towards us, and that's what our extensions of His love mean towards others, that we bear with the weaknesses of others, even with their sins. But the question is, how do we get this love? Where, where on earth does it come from? We hear of God's love and we think, well, I don't have that. Where do we get it? Well, it only comes from one place. And this is our third and final truth about love this morning is that Jesus Christ is the great storehouse of love. In order to find this love, you must go to Christ Himself. He is the greatest and only master and teacher and shepherd to guide you in love. You must learn love from Him. He's the only one who can teach it to you. And I mean Him Himself. His very person. Not just books about Him. You must go to Him. 
You must know Christ's love if you are to love. Again, not just know about His love, but you must actually experience it. But how do you experience Christ's love? Let's circle back around to Ephesians 3. Earlier we observed the simple fact that Paul prayed and that he told the Ephesians about his prayer for them. But do you remember the content of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians? What does he actually pray for? When it comes down to it, what is Paul's greatest desire for the Ephesians, which he brings to God? Well, listen to this. He prays that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This is a very spiritual prayer that Paul prays for the church, that they would grow up into a full knowledge of the extent of Christ's love. And we can't take this growth for granted. It's not something that just happens automatically or in an instant. It only happens as we continually pray for it and seek after it. And God loves to continually pour out His grace and power as we unceasingly look to Him for it. So here's a place to start when going to Christ in prayer. Go to Him and confess your hatred of weakness. Go to Him and confess your ungodly lack of compassion. Because do you know what's wonderful? His lack of love, lack of compassion is a sin which is covered by Christ's love, by His blood. In fact, it is so awful, the sin of being unloving, that no other payment besides Christ's blood will cancel its debt. It is a sin that we can and must repent of and be cleansed of, and that He can cause us to walk in victory over Don't think that Christ just came to die for immorality or theft, but that you somehow have to conjure up real love from inside yourself somewhere. Christ died so that our cold, dead, sinful hearts might be completely renovated. The only sufficient supply of love you will find is in Christ Himself, and He's glorified to take unloving and unmerciful creatures like you and me and form us into His image. So spend time in prayer, speaking with Christ, transacting with Christ Himself, pleading with Christ and confessing to Him your emptiness of love and compassion. Seek to be known by Him, even your anxious thoughts and your sins. Ask Him to search you and know your heart, to try you and know your anxious thoughts. You can't tell Him anything He doesn't already know. And yet he delights in your opening yourself up to him. He pours out his love on those who humble themselves before him. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And as you, rooted and grounded in Christ's love, grow in your comprehension of the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love, you will begin to grow in your love for your brothers, your sisters, your children, your spouse, and even your enemies. And then pray for people you love. Pray for your fellow Christians who are needing to grow in the knowledge of Christ's love. This should be at the top of our list of things to pray for people we learn from Paul, that they would grow, our brothers and sisters, in their knowledge of Christ's love. And then, tell them you're praying for them, these people that you pray for. 
And then pray for unbelievers, for God's enemies. Plead with God for their souls. And then, what do you think? Don't tell them you're praying for them, right? My father-in-law has this habit at restaurants. You've probably heard of people doing this. When he goes into a restaurant, the first thing he'll often do when the server comes to the table is ask the server's name. Okay? And then the second thing he does is remember the server's name and use it throughout the, the meal. But then sometime around when the food is brought to the table, he'll often say to the server, you know, hey, Matt or Jason or Katie or whatever, we always pray before we eat. Is there anything we can pray for you? And then you pray for the server when you pray for your food. It doesn't have to be and probably won't be like while they're standing there. You ask God to bless them in their work and be kind to them. And then you leave a big tip. And then God answers that prayer. But what do you think people's reactions are if you do this? How dare you? What a ridiculous thing to ask. Urgh. They very well might you know, say no, or they'll probably... Sorry, they might say no or it might be awkward, but that's fine. But they'll probably be more vulnerable to you than you expect in our experience. A small handful of times I've mustered up the faith to try this. And uh, sometimes people do think you're strange, it's true. But with humble people, you might see some pretty amazing things. We tried this one time, we went out for our anniversary um, where we stayed at a bed and breakfast. So we had dinner and breakfast at the same place. And we did this with our waitress. We asked her if there was anything to pray and she like, you know, looked real awkward and said some vague sort of general thing like, oh, that, you know, God would bless me or something. Um, so we, we prayed for her. It was pretty uneventful. We went back to the same place for breakfast and did the same thing with our morning waitress that was different. But she was like, it was almost like she was waiting for us to ask. Um, I think she, like she had maybe been told by this other waitress, by the weird people who asked if they could pray for her. But then this waitress was like, eager. And when we said it, she was like, oh. you know, and kind of looked around and said, you know, can we wait till these people over here leave at this table? And we were like, okay, sure. Um, and then after those people left, she proceeded to tell us how like her divorce had just been finalized in court. Um, and she was having to move and change all these things about her life. It, just because we asked if we could pray for her. Um, and I think this is the case. The, the humble and the lowly, if you seek to love them, will appreciate you for it. When you demonstrate to the humble that God cares about their souls, they will be vulnerable to you. So here's a challenge. This is a practical challenge for you. Tell an unbeliever that you pray for, that you pray for them. Do you think they'll be offended? What if they ask what I've been praying for them? Oh, only that God would forgive their sins and that he would pour out the riches of his blessings in Christ on them and that he would be pleased to call them his own son or daughter. Pretty offensive, isn't it? Why would you pray such a thing for somebody? Only one reason, I think, could possibly motivate us to actually pray that for someone, and that is love. If you tell them that, they might actually know that you care about them. Could you do such a thing, pray for them, without caring about their soul? Do you think that might soften their heart toward you and teach them of God's love? I think so. There's one thing in this passage that 
Danny and I both caught Danny's in my attention just this morning that it says, um, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. What does it mean there that Paul says you may be able to comprehend with all the saints? And my, my first thought is like, oh, well, all the saints have already comprehended this. You know, that guy and that woman and that person, they each have fully comprehended the love of God. Now I have to somehow figure out how to like fully comprehend the love by myself. But I think that's actually not at all what Paul is saying. Comprehend with all the saints. Do you know what it requires to comprehend the height and depth of Christ's love? Is It requires all the saints, all of us, to begin to comprehend the love of God. It requires us, all the believers who came before us, all of us in this room, all the believers from every church in the whole world, all of our children and the future generations of Christians together, comprehending the love of Christ. And we will have only begun to comprehend the length, the height, the depth, the breadth of Christ's love. That's one of the glorious things about the church, and that's what Paul says just after this passage, as he talks about God's glory being demonstrated in the church. And it's because it's only in the church that we can even begin to comprehend Christ's love, because he demonstrates it not just in this person and that person, but in his people whom he has called together by his grace.